Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today's guest is Roger Steffens. He is a reggae historian and the author of So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley, and the founder of the former Beat magazine. Welcome, Roger. It's a pleasure to be with you, Steve. We first spoke to you about So Much Things to Say, your amazing oral history. And now here we are, back paying homage to a film that turns 50 years old this year. Hard to believe. Yeah, it's, it goes by so fast. Two days from now, I turn 79, which I just can't come to terms with. It just I see it on paper, and it just doesn't seem real. Well, I have to say, uh, we're on video. We don't show our videos, but it's easier to talk. And you don't look it, so keep up whatever you're doing. Lots of reggae. Lighting. Lighting. <laughs> so The Heart of They Come came out in December 1972 and was a major turning point in Jamaican music. Do you remember when and where you first saw this film and what your impression of it was? Oh, I, I absolutely do. It was in June of 1973. I was living in Berkeley. I had just read an extraordinary article in Rolling Stone, which I never get tired of quoting. Uh, it was by a man from Australia named Michael Thomas, and he wrote an article about the wild side of paradise, which was a mini history of Jamaican music. And it was all brand new to me, which shocked me that something that vast could be so close to America and we knew nothing about it. But what, what really stunned me was the phrase he wrote, reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. <laughs> well, that's, that's true. So I went out right away and I found a used copy of Catch a Fire and the next night, I went to a little theater on the north side of campus, held about 40 people, and it was showing uh, for months, uh, the harder they come. When the chalice scene came on, where everybody started to get really stoned late at night in a circle, everybody in the theater lit up at the <sighs> same time, and there was so much smoke in the theater, you could not see the screen. And on the way home, I, I went to a late night record store, and I bought the soundtrack. And those two things, hearing Catch a Fire and seeing The Harder They Come, changed my life forever to the point where I now am sitting talking to you in the basement of our house, which has seven rooms floor to ceiling of what is now called Roger Steffen's Reggae Archives, which is all the stuff that I've collected from those two days forward. I recently rewatched a beautifully restored DVD of the film, and I was blown away. The color, the sound even subtitles, which was a huge change from the first time I saw the film. Yeah, it is a blown up 35 millimeter print. It is immaculate. It can hold its own with any Hollywood production in 2021. And I'm just thrilled that we have this modernized version with no, none of its essence changed, only enhanced for the world to continue to discover. 
and and the subtitles, you know, it's funny because uh, I think I read that it was Perry Hunsell's wife who oversaw that. But it's funny because I was shocked at the patois and, you know, I can kind of understand some of it. But some of it, I was like, what? And it, it was interesting because it, it would come in and out. Like sometimes there'd be a, a, a subtitle and sometimes there wasn't. And I'd be like, I guess that's an easy one. But it, it, it helped a lot, I thought. And I think for people maybe just coming to this film, I think it'll be a game changer. It is, in fact, the first English language movie ever to have English subtitles. Wow. Wow, that's very <laughs> cool. So the story is by director Perry Hunzel, who himself is a Jamaican, is based on fact. It is the story of Reagan. It means raging. Raging. Okay. What can you tell us about him? Reagan was a real guy. He was killed by the police in 1948, and the headline in the newspaper, uh, the Daily Gleaner the next day was, Thousands at the Morgue, which tell you how popular a folk hero he was just for killing cops. And uh, I, I learned in my researches that the policeman who delivered the fatal shot to Reagan was actually seen pissing on his dead body as a mark of his personal contempt. <laughs> so this was a true story, but it was modernized to make Reagan um, a rising reggae star uh, so that they could use uh, current reggae music on the soundtrack. And it made it a richer story because it got to tell not only the story of Reagan, but the story of the evolution of the Jamaican music business and its overwhelming corruption. Yeah, and that's a, that would be a fascinating documentary in and of itself because it, it, it's one of the more fascinating and robust and, and just a crazy music scene. And a lot of it is documented here. So Ivan Martin, which was Reagan's real name, he's the protagonist, as you mentioned. He's played by singer Jimmy Cliff. And there's a very simple story that I learned as to why Perry Hensel chose him for the role. His first British album showed him on the front cover as an innocent adolescent. And when you flipped it over, uh, he looked like the baddest, most down-out rude boy there was to be found in the streets of Western Kingston. So he thought that uh, Jimmy perhaps had the range to play this character, which was originally written for and intended to be played by Johnny Nash. And talk about baby-faced people. I mean, he I don't think he could possibly have passed for a rude boy from Trenchtown. Um, but I can tell you the story in, in Jimmy's own words here, if you'd like, about how it came about that he uh, got the part. I would love to hear that. So Jimmy said, in 1969, I was at Dynamic Sound Studio in Kingston recording a song I'd written called You Can Get It If You Really Want, which made it onto the soundtrack of the movie. When we finished, I walked outside and met a gentleman named Perry Hensel who had been waiting for me. He said he was making a movie and asked if I could write music for it. By that point, I was pretty well known in Jamaica and the UK. I'd recorded quite a few hits. I always wanted to be a movie actor, so I asked Perry to send me the script. And when I read it, I felt I had known Ivanhoe Martin all my life. In the script, he was a guy from the country who came to the city to make it as a musician, but was held back by the trickery of a record company owner. Eventually, Ivan turns to crime and is killed at the end. I told Perry that the script was great, and he decided to cast me as Ivan. The film at the time was called Hard Road to Travel. 
after one of my songs that we filmed over the next year or so, two in fact. When we shot the scene where Ivan cuts the bicycle store owner who came on really hard, a line came to my mind, the harder they come. In real life, if you come on hard like that, you're going to die hard. When I told Perry my line, he loved it. He thought it was a stronger film title and asked me to write a theme song to go with it. He didn't give me much time, just two days, because he wanted to film me singing it in the studio with the band for the movie. The first development of my song is actually in the movie, when the guitarist and I are rehearsing a song in the church. That's an early draft of The Harder They Come. The rest of the music came fast. When I have a title, the rest always comes very fast. I'm quite good at melodies. The lyrics came from my past. I grew up in the church and had always questioned what they were telling me, like the promise of a pie in the sky when you die. The second verse about oppressors trying to keep me down kind of reflected my own life, coming out of the ghetto in Jamaica and fighting the system. I wanted the song to have a church feel and to reflect the environment I grew up in, the underdog fighting all kinds of trickery. So what you see in the movie and in the recording studio is the song being recorded. You're watching the real thing. Gladstone Anderson was on piano, Winston Wright was on organ, Hux Brown was on lead guitar, Ronnie Bopp played rhythm guitar, Jackie Jackson was on bass, and Winston Grennan was on drums. And Jackie Jackson added to this. He said, we were studio musicians of that era and had recorded with Jimmy many times before. For the theme song, we got together at Dynamic Sounds around 8 p.m. Usually the band started the day at 10 a.m., and recorded about 10 sessions. That's how you made your money. But on this day, we didn't have any sessions and we were fresh. The energy was flowing and we were champing at the bit. Hux Brown adds, when Jimmy arrived, he strummed the song on his acoustic guitar to give us the lowdown. The song's instrumental intro was his. Then Gladdy Anderson told us the key and chord progressions and we spent a half hour getting around it and setting the tempo. Then we were ready to record. So Jimmy Cliff says, I just sang along with the band and improvised the lyrics. I didn't have them all together or fixed in my head when the cameras started. I wasn't one of those writers who jotted down lines on paper. Back then, expressing how I felt off the top of my head created more exciting results. You had the pressure on you. Hux Brown said, we weren't concentrating on the movie cameras. We were focusing on giving the promoter a hit. The band's job was always to sell a song. Uh, Jackie Jackson said, we wanted to do it in one take so the music would be alive. Originally, the song ran for about 20 minutes, and we could have kept going all night. They must have cut down the tape for the single and the album. And Jimmy ends up by saying, the song for me was about social and artistic change. When I lived in the UK, I recorded a lot of ska and rock steady styles of Jamaican music, but people weren't accepting it. So I began using a faster reggae beat. On the record, the song ends with those odd organ chords. That was Winston. He was a brilliant keyboard player. It was his decision to do that. He was good at adding those strange things you weren't expecting. When we finished, we all said, brilliant, wow, great. What you see on my face in the movie was genuine. I felt good. We all felt good. We knew the song was special. Wow, that's amazing. And you know, you're right. I allude to it a little bit later is that 
one of the really special things about this movie is that peek inside the studio. And that version of The Harder They Come is probably at the top of the list uh, in terms of, you know, the emotion. And you can see it on, on Jimmy's face. And it's really, you know, amazing. And That's the sense of the whole film, Stephen, to get reality. Uh, most everybody in the film was a real person. The bad guys were real bad guys. The ganja dealers really dealt ganja. Uh, there were virtually no professional actors in the entire movie. And that set it apart from any other film that had ever been made in the Caribbean. And I think that the main bad guy, I forgot his name, but he he was like a financier of the movie or something, wasn't he? He was one of the financiers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. And he's he's a really good bad man, by the way. So the DVD I got had a bonus section and it had some stuff, interviews with you and you interviewing Jimmy. And it also had an interview with Perry Hensel, who, of course, has passed. Uh, and it's the first time I really heard him speak. I think he said, for someone like Ivan, the promise of the city and the dream of the city was so great that he'd rather lose his life than give up the dream. Oh, that's absolutely right, because what did he have to go back to? He came from nothing. So when you have nothing to lose, you have everything to gain. Yeah, you know, and in, in, in the interview, he mentioned that the spirit of the city, as seen through the eyes of the country boy, was the vibe of the movie and you know Jamaica and Jamaican culture and folklore well what was the plight of the country people who migrated into these overpacked cities in the late 60s and 70s well the the rude boys in the cities were all very style conscious and they all had some kind of trait that differentiated them from everybody else. They might be a great soccer player. They might be a great cricket player. They might be a superb pickpocket, like a man that Bunny Whaler introduced me to called Jabba, <laughs> Jabba the pickpocket. Um, and they considered anybody from outside Kingston to be what we would call a hick. And they, even the Mighty Diamonds made a song about these people called Country Boy. You know no parish church. You know no Pearl Harbor. You don't know any of the sections of the city. You don't know where to go to the beach. You don't know who to hang with. Uh, and um, so they, were, they became marks because there were, there were so few ways to make a legitimate living in Jamaica at that time, particularly in the city of Kingston, that conning somebody out of something as Jimmy is conned immediately out of all his belongings by the pushcart guy, that, that was a day-to-day -day occurrence, especially on parade in the main square in the center of town where the buses from out of town came in. It's not too different from the Port Authority bus terminal today. You know, Perry Hensel emphasized that 1972 to that point was the age of the transistor radio and people in the country they were getting their music and the news from the transistor radio. And so they would migrate into these cities. And it's funny, fresh eyes revealed to me watching this, how detailed and on target Hensel's eyes were. Because, you know, you mentioned the street scenes with the push carts, and that's a great scene. But at the beginning of that movie, almost everyone has a transistor radio held up to their ear. It is as ubiquitous as the cell phone is today for them. It was their way of learning what the rest of the world was doing uh, at that point, don't forget, they only had two radio stations. They had the official government Jamaican Broadcasting Company. They also had a subscription service, like a cable radio station called Radio Jamaica Rediffusion, RJR. But at night, especially on the AM dial, 
radio stations from America would skip in a lot of the clear channels, so-called stations that broadcast uh, on a frequency that nobody else had at 50,000 watts. So they were listening to the great WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee. That had a show called Randy's Records. And uh, Randy's store in Kingston took its name from the Randy's Mail Order Record Company in Nashville, Tennessee, that sponsored a lot of the shows on WLAC. And they played the deepest Black music that you could find in the Southern United States in those days. So um, Jamaicans were well aware of the more obscure artists in, in American Black music. And they covered those songs in the early 60s as Jamaica started to produce their own records. Uh, they also could pick up stations in New Orleans and they also could pick up stations in Miami. So they were tutored by American DJs and the sound systems were set up by uh, people who worked overseas usually as crop pickers like Cox and Dodd himself. And he would save all the money he made picking crops and buy 45 singles uh, 45 re revolutions per minute, for those of you who've never heard of a 45. <laughs> and um, he would bring them back, and his wife ran the sound system. And um, in, in the early days, Duke Reed, who had a rival sound system, actually helped Coxon's wife with her nascent sound system. So um, that has, is how music got heard in Jamaica, not on the Jamaican radio, but on these sound systems that would travel all over the island. And the guy who had the best records drew the biggest crowd and sold the most red stripe beer. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Roger Steffens about The Harder They Come, the legendary 1972 reggae film. It's celebrating its 50th year this year. In real life, Hensel called, you know, the return to the city from the country mostly an illusion. And the footage of some of the ghettos and the conditions in the film are really quite shocking and were even to a lot of Jamaicans when they saw them. 
And this was not an easy movie to make. As you mentioned, it took a couple of years. It took some financing risks. And in part, that was because Henzel said he had a basic decision to make. Can you tell us the story of that decision that he had to make and did make? Well, the decision was, shall I show things as they really are and shock people, including most of the population of Jamaica? Jamaica is almost 200 miles long, and there are probably a majority of people on the island who've never even been to Kingston and a majority of Kingstonians who've never been to Port Antonio on the far northeast of the island or Negril, that exotic seven mile long beach at the western tip of the island. So it, it was a shock, not just to foreigners to see the conditions people were living in, but also to, to the Jamaican people. Uh, there's, there's a very interesting interview with, with Perry Hensel in which he he talks uh, about the, the premiere of the movie, which might be instructive to talk about at this point. He said, in those days, the Carib Theater, where the film made its premiere, uh, was one big 1,500-seat theater. He said, outside, the crowd was so big that you couldn't see the end of it. There was a huge industrial chain-link fence around the theater, and the crowd just flattened it. They broke the doors down. When there were three people in every seat, we ran the film. People just started screaming. It was unbelievable. It was every director's wildest fantasy. It ran for several months and at two cinemas. It just took over Kingston. Um, and then he took it to London. And uh, it eventually earned commercial success, playing for months on end at the ABC Cinema in Brixton Hill. But he says it was a difficult sell. The first night, the theater was empty. Not one critic had gone down there to review it. I had to write up the story of the Jamaican opening and print up thousands of flyers and literally stand outside the underground station in Brixton and hand them out. That turned the tide. The film took off time and again everywhere. The film would just have died without a lot of work. After that, Perry went to 42 countries over a seven-year period, four-walling the movie. He would find a theater that he thought was uh, suitable to show it, and he would engage in lengthy negotiations with the theater owner, um, who usually wanted to take all the receipts from the film, and finally arrive at a contract, and then he would show the film, he would promote it locally, and then he would take the local money and try to repatriate it into U.S. dollars, so all of this took a tremendous uh, chunk out of his life, seven years out of his life. And I believe it wasn't until five years into this process that he broke even on the film. But it, it was in, in his blood for a long, long time. It made his reputation and it put Jamaica on the map. It definitely did that. And uh, let, let's talk a bit about, you know, these premieres, because that was a really big thing. And, and they all happened kind of spontaneously. I know in the interview on the DVD with Perry, he mentions that the Jamaican prime minister and Michael Manley didn't even get into the premiere because the crowd was so big. That's <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, I think it was Perry's own wife who had to be uh, hauled over people's heads to get to the, the front of the theater so she could see her husband's film. <laughs> it was Trevor Roan, I think, who's a writer on the film. He remarked that 
quote, it was like images of ourselves were put up onto that cinema. And that really uh, drove the response of the crowd who went absolutely nuts. Oh, absolutely. You know, seeing, seeing real Jamaicans in real activities in places that they knew that were just a couple of blocks away from the theater. Yeah, that, that was such a thrill for them uh, because they love movies in, in Jamaica and uh, they, they loved Westerns, especially the spaghetti Westerns and uh, any, anything that uh, portrayed bad men. They, they took the names of bad men. You know, the reggae singers would take names like uh, Al Capone and Dillinger. Right. And all of a sudden there were their own bad guys uh, I don't know if you'd say becoming glamorized on the screen, but just the fact that they were blown up on a big screen offers them a certain glamour, doesn't it? Definitely. And, you know, I would mention to our listeners and hopefully some viewers of this film that, you know, the spaghetti Western thing is real. And if you like those movies and some of us grew up on those movies, this is kind of a Jamaican version of it. It's a little bit badder, but it's got that vibe to it, you know, where you just kind of start rooting for the bad guys in a way, you know, and uh, it's a fun movie to watch. But the first screenings outside Jamaica were quite different. Hensel said at the Cork Film Festival that it was so quiet that he got up and walked out. Uh, but then he was told it was a success because Irish audiences were different. And the critics liked it too. Um, the critics helped him, especially in, in England, when one of the major film critics wrote a rave review about it. Uh, so all along the line, he, he was helped by, by those kinds of people. Uh, yeah, everybody re responds in, in different ways around the world to, uh, to the film. Well, the Brixton screening, I know, is quite different because that has a big West Indian population, right? And, and a lot of people weren't really happy with that representation. Is that right? Well, don't forget the people who, who moved to England were there in search of better lives and they, they wanted to rise to the middle class. Mm. And the harder they come was not showing the life of the middle class. Uh, so there was a, a certain percentage of people in England who were Jamaicans who were rather appalled by the film. But for the most part, the youth embraced it and uh, embraced it strongly enough that it ran for several months, night after night, filling the theaters there in Brixton. Well, I know here in Boston, and actually Cambridge, actually, it did eight years at the Orson Welles Theater. And, and the funny story about that is, you know, Jimmy would play almost every year in Boston after a show, he would go and sneak into the Orson Welles Theater. And when the scene came of the picture taking of him with the six guns in his hand, posing for the pictures, he would jump on stage and go make guns with his hands and shoot the audience. And the place would just go crazy. <laughs> there's Jimmy on the screen and there's Jimmy, you know, a few feet away from us on the stage right now. That's classic. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great scene. <laughs> You can't really separate the movie from the music. And, uh, you know, let's talk about the music and the soundtrack a little bit. I heard uh, Hensel in an interview uh, say that Jimmy was supposed to choose all the music for the soundtrack, but he kept delaying it. And eventually he just said no. And so Hensel came up with the rest of the songs. He did it mainly in, uh, in uh, Dynamic Studios uh, with an engineer and uh, a film editor, seeing how. The, uh, the music worked with individual scenes and he was choosing songs that were really big hits in Jamaica around that period. So uh, yeah, it, it was a deliberate process. It took a few days, 
but um, you know, he, he had in mind a, a lot of songs in advance that he wanted to use and find a place for. I want to talk about a couple of the scenes in the movie and, uh, you know, re-experiencing it in such beautiful detail was, was, you know, really, really amazing. And there's a very famous crucial change scene between Ivan, who is Jimmy Cliff, and then Jose, who is one of the bad guys. And it was largely shot and then cut because of a prop issue. Do you know that story? <laughs> well, guns, uh, if you were found with a gun in Kingston, you could go to jail maybe for life sometimes. Um, gun court was notorious at that point because there were so many guns smuggled in by the CIA in the 60s to destabilize the country. And they had to do something really severe to try to prevent more violence. And so if you were caught, even with a single bullet, you could technically be put away for the rest of your life in gun court. And they only had one gun as a prop. So they, they weren't able to shoot the scenes uh, exactly the way they wanted them. They had to wait and shoot from different angles or give the gun to another bad man and share the single gun prop with all the people who needed guns in their scenes. So knowing that story makes watching that scene all the more incredible. And, you know, at one point, Jose, the actor who played Jose, who's the other bad guy in there, was telling a story on the documentary within the DVD about how he had to throw the gun to Jimmy. And he kind of missed and it hit the cameraman in the face and cut him wide open. <laughs> he had to go to the hospital. So they had to delay some more shooting of that scene. And the end of that scene is, is another great, maybe only in Jamaica tale, where Jose escapes. And I'm not writing this for people. But the actor got a real-time, very dangerous reaction from the crowd, which also made the final cut. Yeah, they, they were chasing the bad guy through... Uh through the ghetto and people uh, saw this happening and a lot of them didn't realize that it was a movie that was being shot so they picked up rocks and stones and bricks and pieces of wood and started hurling them at, at Jose as he was running away which increased his motivation to move faster. I was going to say he's hauling ass in that scene. He uh, really it, It's funny. He was excellent in that movie and he was a trained actor who were some of the other notable actors and actresses in the movie? Well, Carl Bradshaw, he was a phys ed teacher at a high school in Kingston when he got the role. And he got it on the recommendation of the drama teacher at the school. And he said it was supposed to be a small part. But after Perry saw me perform, the character grew into second billing. The Harder They Come really brought me into acting. He's now in his late 70s. And he has appeared in a lot of other films, Smile Orange and Clash. Other people in, in the film, they include uh, Janet Bartley, the girlfriend who appeared in several stage productions. Bob Charlton played Hilton. Anyone who knew him said the role of tough-talking music producer Hilton fit Charlton like the proverbial glove. The detective, Ray Jones, was played by Winston Stoner, a former head boy at Jamaica College. He followed up in other films such as The Lunatic and Cool Runnings, but is known in corporate circles as the founder of spice producer Busha Brown. Janet Bartley played Elsa. She moved to England and um, she married the cameraman for The Harder They Come. She appeared in a lot of television shows in England, died in the oh, 80s. Wow. 
the preacher, that marvelous character, the preacher. He is a graduate of Howard University named Basil Keane. His role as preacher, Elsa's guardian, portrayed the powerful influence religious figures held in Jamaica during the early 70s. Keene was an unapologetic exponent of black pride. He became a counselor for the Jamaican Labor Party and also featured in other locally made films like Countryman. And then finally, uh, Voliere Johnson, who was the pushcart boy at the beginning. He was a protege of the writer Trevor Roan. Johnson starred as, as an actor at St. Andrew's Tech, where Roan was his drama teacher. His first production was Roan's adaptation of Dickens' Christmas Carol. Johnson said he was only 19 years old when Roan approached him to play the genial handcart peddler who rips off Ivan in the film's opening scene. When he told me about it, I was excited. Just to be in a movie was great, no matter how small the part. He recalls that small part taking an eternity to shoot. It was in parade in downtown Kingston, a big square, and the people kept looking in the camera. I remember we started filming the afternoon, and because of that, we had to come back the next day and finish. Johnson became a prolific stage actor, starring in numerous plays. He's appeared in two other movies, Milk and Honey and Better Must Come. So some of them stayed with the acting, but most of the rest of the cast had little or no acting experience. Well, it's funny that scene with the pushcart is very early in the movie and sets the tone. I, I definitely laughed out loud. I don't remember that scene until I saw it. And it's just great. And, you know, I wanted to emphasize that, you know, this movie, it's not just a music video at all. There's some really, really well articulated scenes in the movie. And, and one is where Ivan, that's Jimmy Cliff, he drives the car on the golf course. And they had to do this very, very early in the morning for obvious reasons. But Hensel said that that scene was specifically shot and designed to make him look like a winner. Well, yeah, I mean, here's a, a real poor boy from the country and suddenly he's driving around in a super expensive convertible and he's raping a golf course in the process. Now, here's a little piece of trivia for you you might not know. Jimmy did not know how to drive. He didn't even have a didn't even have a driver's license, so they had to use a double to look like Jimmy in the long shots, and that was the great rock steady King Alton Ellis. Oh wow, one of my favorites. This is why we have you on, Roger. And for our, our viewers and listeners out there, you're going to take this to the bank when you watch the movie. It, it's just it's just a great movie, but also the soundtrack. Let's talk about the soundtrack for a moment because this is likely the first reggae album many people heard or bought. Uh, it still stands as one of the greatest albums of all time. And then there's the cover art, which is unbelievable. And the film posters are stone cold classics. It, it really etched in stone this image. Yeah, and the graphics had a great deal to do with the success of the film. They did it like a black exploitation film. In fact, in the original uh, promotion of it, I believe it was Roger Corman here in LA who, who bought the rights to the film for a while and wanted to put it out like, you know, Cotton Goes to Harlem or something. And it didn't click. And it's interesting because uh, on the DVD, you interview Jimmy Cliff and he says to you, the essence of my music is struggle. And that, you know, turns out to be right on, even though many people might consider him more the pop side, but that wasn't the case. Absolutely right. And so many of his songs reflect that. You know, you can get it if you really want. 
He said, we are messengers. We're the people with this righteous music. You have a set of people out there who teach lies, and you have a set of people who teach truth. Well, I stand on the side of truth. And that's exactly why he makes those kinds of songs he makes. And they are among the great protest songs of all time. In fact, Bob Dylan heard Vietnam and said that it was the best protest song he ever heard in his life. We've been speaking with Roger Steffens, who is a reggae historian and author of so much things to say, an oral history of Bob Marley, about the legendary film, The Harder They Come. As you know, Roger, this is kind of our All Music Docs uh, entry into uh, kind of a new side project, and we're thrilled to have you on. I knew you were the right guy to talk about this movie. Uh, For those who haven't seen it, let me ask you one last question. Why should people see this film? What's its legacy? Its legacy is that it's part of history, beginning with the very title itself, which is 2,400 years old and dates back to Herodotus, who said, the harder they come, the harder they fall. It is so true to life and the struggles that impoverished people suffer and have to exist with every hour of every day of their lives. But it it is stunningly beautiful at the same time. It will remind you of things like Black Orpheus, which revealed life in the favelas of Brazil, but introduced bossa nova to the world in the same way by telling the story of the sufferers, the downpressed. It reveals the glories and beauties of rocksteady, reggae, even rap. I mean, one of the songs on the soundtrack that people like best is Draw Your Breaks by Scotty. And everybody asks me, what does forward and fayaka, monocle, and then go saka mean? And a philologist, a linguist, a scholar named Ken Bilby finally decoded it and wrote a piece about it. And uh, forward and fayaka, move out and grab that girl. Monocle, manhandle her, and then go saka, and then take full advantage of her. So it's, you know, bucking up against a weaker man and taking his his woman away from him. Spaghetti Westerns in Jamaica. Uh, (laughs) Roger, thank you so much for your time. That was a a fantastic uh, journey into that movie. And uh, I really do hope people will see it if they haven't seen it, because I think you're right. It stands the test of time. And even better, it looks better and sounds better than it ever has. So thank you so much for joining us, Roger. We appreciate it. It was a great pleasure for me to be with you, Stephen. Thank you so much for taking the time today. One love. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.